Happy Monday, and welcome back to your favorite podcast ever. That's right, Lions of Liberty with Mark Claire. And uh, man, life has just been, uh, it's been wild and crazy. Let's just put it that way. Uh, mostly in a good way, but you know, whenever you're going through changes and uh, getting a lot of things done, a lot of uh, hecticness comes with it. And that is all my way to say uh, this was not the perfectly recorded episode. You'll hear a little echoey. I mean, I've been bouncing from Airbnb to Airbnb. I'm actually recording this portion of the podcast in a hotel right now. Um, due to my terrible internet at this B&B last week when I did the, the interview you're going to hear with Tho Bishop today, uh, we could not, we almost gave up on the interview, but then we decided Tho had the brilliant idea. Let's just turn our video off uh, and get this thing done. And everything went smooth once we turned that video off. So there is no, there will be versions of of this show posted on YouTube and Odyssey as always, but there won't be actual video. You won't get to see uh, the beautiful faces of Tho Bishop and I. Uh, that being said, let's just get right to it. This is a broadcast I did last Monday right after the Reno reset with Tho Bishop. And uh, really, my only regret is I, I can't believe it. It, it might have only happened once or twice before. I forgot to ask Tho if he was ready to roar. My God, but as you'll hear, he was and he did. So enjoy the show, kids. As you can see, as you cannot see, you cannot see our video because we gave it a a big a big soldier's uh, attempt, a big college try at doing a video stream, but it is simply not possible with the shitty, shitty Mexican Airbnb internet I am currently on. But nonetheless, even though I can't see him anymore, I'm pleased to be speaking to the man himself from the Mises Institute. I totally forgot your title, though. What, what is your title at the Mises Institute? Associate Editor. Associate Editor at the Mises Institute, as well as, I believe it is Vice Chair of the Bay County GOP, is that correct? That is true. Perfect. All right. Well, before we get into some of the topics that we're going to talk about today, why don't we touch on, I guess, the talk of Liberty Twitter right now, at least this week, uh, at least as of this recording, the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus did, in fact, accomplish quite handily, I guess I have to say, the Reno reset. They pretty much swept, I think, essentially every single position and essentially do control the Libertarian Party now. So just starting off here. What are your thoughts on this? Did you expect this to go down this way? And where do you see this going in terms of how the Mises caucus is able to affect our political world? Well, it certainly was, seemed to be trending that way for a while. And, and for, first and foremost, again, in spite of all of my other you know, strategic issues with, with the LPS strategy, it, it is great to see bad people lose. And oh, I, I was surprised by how much <laughs> joy I got from just reading all of the angry hate posts from all the losers out there. Um, so, so again, regardless of everything else, strategic differences aside, you know, I, I think the people that were behind the, the Reno takeover, uh, Reno reset, sorry, uh, I think I think the the entire Mises Caucus group consists of the best parts of the LP. You know, more power to them. I, I hope that they are successful in everything that they they try to accomplish. And, and in particular, I'm, I'm glad you know, Josh Smith being able to take a hold of that vice chairman position without the official backing the caucus. As someone, I, I have a soft spot whenever I see uh, a populist out, populist the the the, the intringency there. So I think that was a, a very good sign with just uh, some of the stuff going on in there. So again, you know. I, I'm 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 doubtful that uh, skeptical that this is going to have any larger impact on on the duopoly or anything else out there in, in, in politics. But at least for one for one good weekend, uh, all the all the worst people in the libertarian movement were uh, were upset, and uh, that there's there's some value in that if nothing else. 
Yeah, I think I would pretty much echo your thoughts there. You know, as, as much as I too have been critical of even really the concept of of bothering to take over America's largest third party, bothering to take over the LP, there is that part of me too that just watches the cringiest people that we know anywhere near this movement have absolute meltdowns and absolute breakdowns, and uh, there is absolute entertainment and value in that for me that I, I certainly will not deny. And uh, something else you mentioned there of Joshua Smith kind of a. Uh, Outpopulisting the populists. I mean, within the LP, you know, he was not getting gotten given the endorsement by the Mises Caucus. They did first go with someone else, and I think they kind of backtracked on the endorsement, decided not to endorse any, anybody. Uh, and then Dave Smith strongly came out for Joshua Smith, and he ended up taking that vice chair position. So that is a kind of an interesting little side story as well. I almost forgot about that till I saw this graphic this morning of all of the Mises Caucus members that endorsements that got positions, and there was like twenty people on this thing, and Joshua was nowhere to be found. And then I, that's when I kind of remembered, oh yeah. Yeah, he actually didn't technically get the Mises Caucus endorsement. So that's an interesting little side story that uh, that we'll keep an eye on there. But do you, you know, where do you see the Mises Caucus affecting? Do you do you think they can affect national politics in any way? Or do you, or do you think that because a lot of the arguments that we'll hear is like we're doing a lot of stuff locally that will bear fruit. Do you think that maybe even on a maybe piece by piece local level, um, just like you are working locally in the GOP, is there any chance that working within a Mises caucus in a certain area might actually bear fruit locally for, for some of them as well? What's funny is I'm skeptical again of, of, of the energy that you saw this weekend kind of continuing forward, but where, where there could be the potential for, for genuine value out there is kind of if, if the LP under the Mises caucus leadership almost embraces a you know, outflanking the right from the right. And, and really when it comes to the issues that I think they prioritize, right. As you know, such as the COVID regime, um, obviously gun rights are going to be one of those issues, you know, the, uh, uh, the going against you know the fbi and and all of these bureaucratic agencies that you know tucker carlson complains about right if if the lp can be a a mechanism by which instead of you know the corporate press kind of propping up an, a libertarian every time that they have a position that confirms the left's bias on a certain issue if instead you have people pointing out that hey look you know macho republican why aren't you as right-wing as the lp is on this constitutional issue or this some you know something that kind of gets the blood pumping for ultra MAGA crowd right um then i think it could be useful that and and that doesn't necessarily require it to becoming hardcore conservative on on those issues where they want to outflank the left from the left right at least theoretically right it's, it's all about prioritizing and the communication i think angela mccardle is, is as good as anyone in the lp um and and presenting these sort of of uh, pushback narratives um, and everything that she's been doing with in California on the COVID regime stuff. So, you know, maybe if, if they can really commit as an organization to taking it straight to the regime in ways that populist right people could find useful, then that might be able to create a dynamic there where maybe it can kind of help this broader, uh, uh, you know, populist moment where the energy is again, firmly in the Tucker Carlson sort of right camp. Um, but we'll see if that continues. Uh, but again, you know, it's, it's, it's going to require, I, th I think again, a, a lot of party discipline, which libertarians are particularly known for, um, you know, will we now see the opportunities where people are going to really, you know, Justin Amash's entire message, um, which I think had some good stuff in there. I'm, I'm not trying to bash Amash broadly, but you know, his entire focus on when he get win, win elections. I think that if that becomes the focus of, 
you know, the, the, the post-2022 convention, I think that's going to be lackluster if instead it can be used to kind of shift the Overton window a little bit more to um, what, what would now be, I think, currently be described as the right. I think that could be, you know, something potentially useful. We'll see. Yeah, and certainly. And, and, and if, if this ends up getting me, let's say, uh, Angela McCardle on MSM giving the quote unquote libertarian position on something or Joshua Smith, if, if, if I can get them on the TV saying that kind of stuff instead of, let's say, a Nicholas Starwark, if that's the result of this, I'll see that as a positive. You know, so I won't deny that there are certainly potential good effects from this stuff. Uh, since you brought it up there, since you brought up Justin Amash, why don't we just look at his speech? I think you did watch the whole thing. I just saw some snippets of it, but he did give a speech at uh, the libertarian uh, convention. And he did sort of try to troll the MC a little bit by putting out some Mises quotes that ended up getting booed. Uh, just want to get your take on that speech and what you thought of Justice, Justin Amash's kind of angle to attempt to. I don't think he was really trying to troll as much as, well, maybe troll in a way, but as much as just kind of show like, look, my brand of libertarianism here belongs here as much as yours does. Yeah, and I think this is this is some of the best Amash stuff I've seen where he was being a little, a little punchy, I think, mm-hmm. by you know, emphasizing you know, certain parts of liberalism by Mises. Because you see this a lot, right? Where, where people kind of wave the banners or, or wear the shirt of, you know, a scholar to kind of make them, you know, feel more intellectually, uh, you know, intelligent. And, and then, you know, you know, don't understand really some of the ideas they really have about things. And I, I think there is some value with, with you know, I, I've revisiting some of Mises's uh, uh, less doctrinaire modern libertarian stuff. I think there's some some interesting lessons there, and I think that he was having fun pushing back on that. He did not emphasize the the part of liberalism where Mises talks about how uh, it is completely understandable for uh, uh, native populations under an interventionist government to fear a great replacement uh, <laughs> if you have open borders. Um, um, you know that's well, one of one of the more interesting I think uh, uh, parts of of that book in question. But uh, the problem is is that the first half I think was was fun and and good. Then it kind of really you know kind of lost itself into the the celebration of democracy itself. He starts off with, like this really weird, interesting kind of lack of self awareness thing where he talks about how like oh yeah when I was a Republican everyone knew I was a libertarian and I could keep winning elections and it's like well. <laughs> Let, let's let's think that through again. Neither here nor there, um, but the, it's the second stuff where it, it kind of it's the more emphasis on you know trying to bridge uh, small government fiscal conservatism with I think a, a more uh, liberal aesthetic. Then I, I think I understand where he's coming from. But, you know, it's 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 just something I don't think works, and I think Amash is an example of it not working. There's just not a political constituency for uh, you know I, I think for that sort of model, and I think that. You know, when we think about, you know, what are the actual changes to the system? What over what 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 surprises things? It's it's not these, you know, it, it's not just an amash. It's not, uh, uh, you know, the the very selective grouping that a, a Reason magazine is trying to appeal to. It's 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 something that can resonate in a large enough of the population at at, a, at, a, at an emotional level. And of course, you know, with with amash, right? You know, he he was highlighting all the times that he voted no on things that were seen as you know obvious or popular or whatever and still was able to win his seat you know when he lost was when he went against donald trump as a, as a personal right. figure as an with emotion attached to that and that's mm-hmm. where he went from being able to be a, a a far libertarian congressman to being a unelectable congressman and and so that dynamic is is something where again i I've, i think there's there's lessons to learn from the example of of, of amash um, and, and you know something that we should be avoiding the you know, where, where he is at politically is the least relevant he's been in 12 years 
and and like that should be the lesson that should be the takeaway that we get i think from some of this sort of of talk uh rather than uh the direction that yeah it goes going back to the the the, the broader lp convention thing too like the, the the framing of this past week and within reason within you know some of the more public uh, uh commentators out there from from beltway libertarianism I, th- I think that that is such an interesting dynamic in its own right because these 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 people that have been lecturing for for years now the proper way of selling libertarianism these people couldn't even maintain their own influence within a third party and i i think that 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 right there is the, is a greater condemnation of their entire approach, their entire worldview, um, you know, than any sick dunk of some hoppy and could throw out there on Twitter. All right. Well, last LP question just on this track, because I, I think, you know, Amash kind of went all in on the idea of going the LP route. And you know, as we've seen, he went from giving speeches in front of Congress to giving speeches in a convention hall in Reno. So we saw how that worked out for him. But, he, you know, he has kind of gone on. It, you got to think he still has some interest in becoming the LP nominee. Uh, when he first entered the party, it was more of the Bill Weldy sort of Gary Johnson party. And now it is clearly the Mises caucus party. Do you think he has any chance? I mean, he does have that, I guess, as far as libertarian party potential candidates go, he has that resume, so to speak. And he hasn't really been, while he's not the Mises caucus's guy by any means, he certainly hasn't been, I wouldn't say he's been an enemy of the, of the caucus at all. So do you see him having any chance of becoming the nominee or is this pretty much Dave Smith's if he wants it now? Oh, I, I don't think he could beat Dave. Um, if, if that was, if it came down to it, I ultimately, I, I don't think you know, I, I think that his entire approach that he articulated, I, I, it would surprise me if that's what the Mises Caucus dominated LP wanted to go with in, in 2024. I, I, to me, I think it's while while Mosh is much better, I think in many ways, at least at this point uh, in, in his career, than Gary Johnson is. Um, I, 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 tone wise, I, I think that there is, you know, I, I don't think it, they're they're antagonistic against each other, but I, I don't think that they are in the same boat right now. And I think you you saw that was was some of the more Substantive critiques on changes over the platform and things like that. You know, it, the, the, the things that weren't purely personality driven, but instead reflected more substantive changes in the direction and strategy of the organization. Um, so, you know, but, but the best thing that could happen to Mosh, I think, right now, I, I know he's teaching, um, he's, he's doing, you know, doing some, some teaching stuff, which is great. Um, you know, I'd much rather have him there than most former politicians. You know, but you know, if, if Cato is going to become something more useful down the line, I think the uh, uh, approach the style of Amash, which is again very intellectual, um, but not being a ass, for lack of a better words, is a lot better than and then a lot of the most public figures that Cato has. You know, the Alex Nazarats, the uh, Aaron Ross Powell's, you know, the people that kind of enjoy rubbing people's nose and how elite they are. Um, I'd much rather see Amash kind of take over something and, and kind of become the face of Cato. Uh, I, I think that would be a good thing for, for all involved, uh, but I, I think that's going to be more likely than, than a, a presidential run. Um, and, you know, or, or, or you know, I, yeah, I, I think that would be a better direction with where politics is right now. Um, you know, but may, may, maybe the winds will change and really what people will end up de- demanding by the masses is some, some uh, proud Hayekian. Right. Well, I've got my popcorn out either way. I'll say that <laughs> I, I find, I find all this very much entertaining. Uh, so, but moving along, let's move along from the LP to talk about more of what you are doing within the GOP. And there's just a couple sort of, I guess, myths I want to kind of dispel along the way. Um, why don't we actually just start with paleo-libertarianism? This is a, a term that gets tossed around a lot, usually in a pejorative manner uh, from, uh, I guess, the, the cringe kind of libertarians that we were talking about before. 
what what is your take on just what li- parallel libertarianism really is and you know where you see it fitting in today's political context increasingly i'm, I'm just okay with the, the simplification of you know libertarian politics with conservative social theory right it, it is it is a uh culturally thick form of libertarianism i don't think that it has dramatically changed my view of the state as an institution at all it's just a recognition that uh in order to have a decreased role for the state or no role for the state it requires um common communal values and that what you end up seeing is that what preserves liberty are those that i think go beyond individualism in the most crass sense right you know it, it is uh, uh creating high trust societies um which again goes to you know sh- common moral values um you know usually through the church uh comes from recognizing that you yourself are not the more, most important thing so you know i i think that you know recognizing that in order to be a good neighbor it means that you can't do simply whatever you want to do you have you have responsibilities and duties to to others and so i think that ends up conforming itself to taking the most radical parts of our views of the state and and, and ultimately i think this is one of the things that i've i've come to appreciate over the last few years and ryan mcmakin uh, did a great uh, lecture on this at mises u last year uh, 2021 uh, about you know historically the the i think the role of the question of like legitimacy in the state is is very important and obviously there's certain sort of antichrists that would say the state can never be legitimate but ultimately you know it's, it's if the state is providing services to its people it is a legitimate entity and if it's being a parasitic entity then it's not and i think ultimately you know when you realize what allows for governance to be beneficial and not parasitic um you know i think you often recognize that there really is no separation of church and state right there is a value system that that is reflected within um the use of arms and things like that and so that that itself just requires focusing on the questions of morality and values and and recognizing that you you are more aligned with cultural conservatism um than you are with either left libertarianism or or cultural relativism and i think you know it's it's, it's not that uh, uh difficult I, I i think that you know it's it's something that i think the uh, uh politically you're seeing it play out in, in a variety of different ways the, the entire shift on the right towards recognizing that the fbi is capable of creating uh you know false flag incidents to arrest political dissidents Right, you know, the, the, the weaponization of the banking system. That used system. to be a conspiracy theorist position only. Right, and and now now like what it's what it's doing is it's shaping the role that, that you know law and order conservatives have their perception of the FBI as a legitimate institution. Right, the the the, the, the entire perception of Washington as having any legitimate ruling, and so I think this is what's creating what I I think is a paleo libertarian populist moment. In this country, whether people use that term or not is irrelevant. Whether people are reading old Murray Rothbard articles or not is irrelevant. It is an emotional feeling of those. And, and again, it typically is the Christian front. And of course, you can see this, I think, play out most obviously with who are being attacked the most in the press, um, which again, you know, shout out to the Mises Caucus for the Southern Poverty Law Center attack piece. Um, but along those lines, right, it's, it's like, it, there's been a lot of concerns about Christian nationalism, right, as, as an insidious threat taking over churches. I think that is a reflection of, of a, a paleo uh, libertarian revival, if you will, because within that Christian nationalism is a questioning of 
uh, the, the righteousness of federal state. Um, you know, you, you see it play out with obviously the, the MAGA crowds and the Marjorie Taylor Greens, um, the the you know the Matt Gates and the like. And so I think all of this, it's it, so ultimately that is it is it is the the explicitly culturally conservative aspect. Which is, you know, some of the, and, and I think the Mises Caucus, right, for example, is trying to make an appeal to such people by eliminating explicit mentions, mentions of abortion, right? Getting rid of the, uh, 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 some of the, the wokish sort of language on discrimination stuff. Um, you know, because what those comes down to is just kind of recognizing that we have, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that these cultural preferences, even if you disagree with them, are valid. And I think that is something that we're seeing more and more play out uh, in society right now. And um, I think that's that, that, that there's nothing that's changed my opinion over the last uh, year in terms of uh, what direction I, I, I find myself uh, leaning towards. All right, gang. Well, you know what I would be leaning towards if I was, let's say, a young man between the ages of 16 to 24 this summer. That would be the event being put on. By our newest sponsors that is the reason and power summer seminar and this event well it's not for me it's not for me because this is for young people this is for youth age 16 to 24 i am let's just say older than that but my gosh do i wish somebody had kicked me in the butt and sent me to something like this when i was that age this is a fantastic seminar bringing young people from all around the u.s and beyond for deep discussions on foundational philosophical texts they utilize the powerful socratic method where students learn through dialogue not just from lectures by the end of this event students are going to discover just amazing connections between the ideas that they read and discuss and the contemporary world that they inhabit the bridge that i have been trying to help people cross for much of this podcast how to take this theoretical and apply it to the real world where that's exactly what you're going to learn to do well maybe not you but maybe a young person around you or a young person that you know Uh, although i do know we have a good number of young people listening to the show so if you are between the ages of of 16 to 24 or you have a loved one who is you gotta send them or send yourself to the reason and power summer seminar register by june 15th you gotta do this soon friends to take advantage of the early bird discount for more information visit the greatconnections.org slash seminars again that is the reason and power summer head over to the greatconnections.org slash seminars one interesting thing you mentioned there is you know how a lot of people on the right um, the far right, the dissonant right, whatever you might want to call it, are losing faith in the FBI as an institution and seeing the FBI as illegitimate. And when you think about this, I mean, what have libertarians or anarcho-capitalists been trying to do by beating people over the head with it for in, since their inception? It's convinced them the state is illegitimate, but doing so through like, you know, handing them human action or what have you, doing so through winning the logical arguments. But here we have something just naturally playing out, naturally playing out without necessarily libertarians having to you know hand everybody anatomy of the state along the way where you see a huge segment of the culture on the right just coming to distrust the FBI and see it as illegitimate. So you're seeing this effect on the right, not in the same way that a lot of libertarians are trying to get there. But when you see that happening, you have two options. 
we could tell them, no, you're still status because you believe in maybe these other parts of government. Or we can say, you know, not I told you so, but, just, you know, show just show where we have that overlap and, and kind of show them maybe you maybe you can introduce some anatomy of the state articles at that point. Maybe you can show them, well, yeah, this is kind of what we've been trying to say. And maybe you can see our viewpoint that way. So there are ways to I think what a lot of people seem to mix up here. And this can kind of dovetail into talking about more of what you're doing um, with the GOP locally is a lot of people think, oh, you have to go in and then give up your libertarian positions to join the GOP and to work within the GOP, where to me, I see it as quite the opposite and and quite the opposite of a superpower. You can walk into a GOP meeting and show them why they're already libertarian in some ways. So can you maybe break that down maybe in terms of how you've been operating within the Bay County GOP? Yeah. And, 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 you know, I I think that's this, I've been going through the French revolution a lot lately because i find it a fascinating period yes. from a variety seen of lots of napoleon tweets lately <laughs> yeah and it's and so and, and there's, there's a dynamic here that i've come to just appreciate more and more in terms of understanding the current framework and really the way that that, that democratic frameworks have already have always existed and that's that you know there, there's a there's a always a portion of you know historically it would be the you know, the nobles and the elites right they were the ones that would read you know the the philosophy books and they would discuss them in you know places like salons right the high intellectual ideals and you know they since since they wore within the kind of the, the noble elite class you know they had a little bit of, of influence with you know typically within the way some of the political intrigue played out and and its ramifications for the state and so that's the way that a lot of of societies even you know a lot of republics kind of operated on this you know this was kind of you think about the the original uh, uh, political framework of the you know after the American Revolution, right? You have um, you know it's it's the highlighted gentry that have the political power, and so there's a dynamic there where it it really is the intellectual currents that can end up shaping uh, uh, the political discourse. Then you broaden things out and you get to a, to a more democratic system where you have no you know obvious barriers of entry besides age and citizenship and some of the bare kind of bare minimums there um there what you have is that within current society politics is sold as a civic responsibility right so we 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 place a high emphasis on voter turnout there's various things that we fund in terms of raising voter turnout and so what that's going to lead most you know so that that has led to a politics where political weapons your political power is kind of wielded by who can turn up the emotion of the masses, the, the people that aren't engaged in political discussions. Um, and that has been shaped in a bit with the social media where you, you now have, you know, that class that's not going deep, but still can enter, you know, have, have, have conversations and things like that. Um, a similar dynamic played out after the French revolution where you had, uh, uh, you know, you, you had, very idealistic people putting in charge, uh, uh, you know, you're trying to elect their ideas into the General Assembly or, or you know, the, the, the revolutionary government. And at the top, you would have the people that were end up rising. They, they were either incapable of dealing with political dissidents, which is how you get Robespierre, because he was so believed in his political values that you, had to, you have to deal with political dissidents one way, or you get them so... Uh, uh, so cynical that they'll do whatever it can, whatever they can to kind of sell out everything else to rise in power. Hmm. And, and I think that this is a dynamic where uh, uh, that has been at play where a lot of the people that, that want to embrace the very ideological sort of games, they focus on making 
arguments to the people where they, they are, they're responding to actual hardships that they're facing rather than intellectual ideas, right? You know, the, the French Revolution was being fueled by, by grain riots, right? And then that, that was added to, uh, uh, you know, the unpopularity of the king. And then, then, then you have armed attacks from the guard against the public. And, and all of this kind of created a self-reinforcing mechanism here that more than the ideas of the enlightenment it was the the ability to organize and and mobilize the masses the peasantry class particularly in the parisian peasants against the order that led to the, to the toppling the system and what led to a inevitably chaos until you had kind of a, a replacement king rise up and, and napoleon bonaparte that is a dynamic which is kind of long-winded there the, the, the relevance though is that within the right what we've seen is that the person that can kind of bring together a lot of disenfranchised center right um and by this i mean center right is simply you know they they people that recognize that a man with a beard is not a woman and <laughs> don't hate the american flag right That's like that that now. is yeah. that is what it comes down to with with how politics have gone and so, you know, it, it requires a certain force of personality to kind of bring together responses, that, material responses that, that are making people feel like they're being left out beyond the high-minded ideas. And, and ultimately, I think that's, that's what I find, why I find this moment so interesting, because so like the work that I'm doing with the Bay GOP, you know, it is to try to connect Rothbardian ideas, you know, the ideas that, that I think you know, most of your audience would agree with me on, and just trying to communicate them in a way to highlight the relevance they have to the material forces that you know, these people that you know, they, they may never get beyond watching Tucker Carlson or listening to Ben Shapiro. Right. A lot of Ben Shapiro fans you know, with, within my audience, um, you know, they're not going to read Human Action or For New Liberty. Um, they're, they're willing to engage at that point, or they might even not go that far. They just know that they hate paying $5 for gas. Right. And, and so, you know, that is ultimately what I think politics truly is. It's not these intellectual debates. It's not, you know, conversations about theory. Those things can be useful into how power is wielded, but ultimately what power really becomes, you know, what, what politics really becomes is the ability to mobilize and organize for power forces within society around a banner that has connected to it with its own ideas. And sometimes those ideas can even be inconsistent and incompatible, right? Like this, this is not necessarily, you know, again, rationality and, and um, comprehension is not really, you know, necessarily what, 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 what wins in this sort of game. Um, and so, you know, stuff that we're trying to do is again, just trying to be the most out front, explicit, you know, cheerleader for Ron DeSantis and, and, and still Trump and particularly doing so and identifying the ways that they are, you know, going after they're making moves that most republicans aren't like highlighting where they are different from a mitch mcconnell or a marco rubio at times or a uh, like my congressman neil dunn who's been very very bad and, and getting a lot of pushback locally for the 40 billion dollar uh, vote against ukraine which is sort of issue that would you know often kind of go by the wayside right highlighting how the the, the major figures that motivate the masses here locally as republicans what makes them better than average and 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 by doing that we can kind of get them on board with i think a, a more radical populist uh agenda and i think ultimately that's where this this battleground going on on the right is you know this this is what matters the most and uh that's it's it's, it's very interesting to see the sort of bedfellows popping up 
within the new right. You know, you have Posobiec, you know, retweeting Mises stuff and, and even talking about the Mises caucus, right? You know, you've got uh, uh, Jesse Kelly, um, who's, who's good friends with Dave Smith, right? Like, that's where I think there's some very interesting sort of overlaps going on and just trying to, to do whatever we can on a local level um, to, to bridge that with, you know, my neighbors, you know, fellow Republicans in Bay County. One of the things I, I hear a lot when, um, when people are criticizing you or just anybody doing work within the GOP is they'll say, oh, Tho just wants you to go v- vote GOP, as if that is the summary of your strategy here. I mean, to me, that's as silly as saying the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus just wants you to vote Libertarian. Well, of course they want more than that. That's why they're trying to replace the people and put better people into that party and then vote for them. Is It would be more their their idea. And I think uh, I, when, I, when I see the kind of messaging you're doing out there, the vast majority of your messaging that I've seen anyway is going after other Republicans and other Republicans in your county who you think are are really you know, are really selling out the people. So can you dig into like more of the I guess the inner party workings that you're that you're kind of messaging through trying to influence the party itself to I don't know if you want to say become more libertarian necessarily, but to become more populist and to be embracing uh, a lot more of the positions that I think most I guess libertarian leaning people would probably end up being more in favor of than than otherwise. Yeah, like uh, you know, my my Republican congressman hates me, um, <laughs> and, and for good reason. Like I've been very very vocal uh, against them. The good thing though is that like I I, I think that the, the message that I like is that we deserve better, right? And and that that comes to the whole thing where you know if, if the idea is simply vote GOP no matter who. Like no, like it, it the, the goal is working within the GOP to piss off all of the uniparty figures, the Dan Crenshaw's of the world, the Liz Cheney's, right? You know, those folks and to get them out and to create a system that is hostile to them being, being in there. Um, and so that means highlighting every single time a congressman has a bad vote on guns. If your if, if your community is very passionate about guns, that means, you know, I, I think particularly you know, taking the messaging on like the Ukraine issue where it's very easy to have, I think, to be conflicted on that issue, right? I, th- I think it's very easy to look at what, what has happened there um, to see that, you know, Putin's war is an act of aggression. Um, therefore, seeing rather than a sort of abstract argument for, um, you know, weapons or something else, um, you know, this is something that, you know, if, if, you know, if you're not going to have the international order step up for a sovereign nation invading another sovereign nation, you know, what's the point there and I, you know, it's it's. I understand that on on a a, a certain level, um, but then when you do that combined with the you know, just, you know billions of dollars going over there, where you have the most severe economic environment that America's had in a very long time, that the you know, highlighting and emphasizing that point, like that's that is if there's going to be any chance of, I think turning the conservative voting bloc of America into an anti-regime framework. It, it, it very much is that nationalistic America first. Why aren't we taking, you know, taking care of Americans over Ukrainians or Iraqis or, you know, anyone else out there? Um, ho- hopefully, you know, that, that would include, you know, throughout Europe and in other, other parts of the world. Um, that dynamic is something that, you know, because it's it's uniquely nationalist, like that's that's the battle. Where I think one of those areas where you, there really is that battleground where people it's, it's not going to be won by high minded ideas. It's going to become who, who wins that battle of emotion, that that gun instinct battle. Um, and so that's where yeah. So you know, I, I am I'm hated you know far more by I think local Republican traditional power bosses uh, than, than I am you know by by any, any other aspect of, of 
you know, libertarian Twitter, certainly more so, I think, than most of the people, the, the, the libertarian uh, Mises caucus. Um, though, though it is funny of late, uh, uh, the, the local Democrats have now started to attack me as well. So it's, it's very fun when um, <laughs> you, you, you have the establishment Republicans and the small group of like crazy left-wing activists here locally um, you know, being the most uh, uh, you know, negative on, on you at the same time. That, that's when you know you're on the, on the right direction right there. Yeah, I mean, when you've got the right enemies, it says, it says a little something about if you're on the right path or not. Um, I, I, I don't want to keep digging on, on the Mises Caucus thing, but I am just kind of curious, like, like just because a lot of this criticism does come from people within the Mises Caucus, like, how different would your approach have to be? Or, I mean, you probably couldn't even get the foot in the door with the kind of people that you're, um, that you're, you know, that you're talking to and that you're working politically with right now, if you approach them from not even the libertarian party, but just any third party, or maybe even as an independent. So why do you think it's so important to do what you're doing specifically through the GOP? And how would that just be so much more difficult or maybe even impossible if you were taking a libertarian party route or maybe even an independent route? You know, one of the things I've been very excited about is the amount of, you know, Republican congressional staffers that have reached out and, you know, we've been able to get together at CPAC or some of these, you know, you know Turning Point USA events and things like that. It's, it's the, the personal relationships that I've been able to make by truly embracing, you know, the right and particularly your Republican politics and all the integrity with, you know, inner battles within that. That has allowed me to, you know, where, where I'm not going to, you know, I'm not trying to win over the masses on you know reading safety amos's the bitcoin standard right what i have had success with is being able to talk to a congressional staffer in a certain senator's office and you know i mean you know we were able to actually stop a really bad federal reserve nominee from getting on the fed because a senate staffer um whose boss was in charge of setting the voting schedule you know made sure that nominee was never confirmed and it's because of a conversation i was able to have directly with them and part of that just comes from the benefit of mutual respect and, and being on the same team. And, and while I think that there's, there's you know, I, I don't think that every person that is a capital L libertarian is not taken seriously by some of these groups. I think, you know, there, there is a level there where it, there, it, 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 it never helps, right? You know, a capital L libertarian is never taken more seriously by a Republican because of that, that party affiliation. Hmm. And so, you know, and, and so that, that means at the state level, again, trying to build stronger relationships with, with, you know, staff members of the DeSantis orbit, right? You know, it's trying to build closer relationships with people like Anthony Sabatini or, or other state members that, um, you know, are more aligned for this. And I can do that with the party, you know, through the party system where that title, that position helps open up very much so those relationships and again as, as you mentioned those would be a lot harder to have without you know if, if i was an lp member if i was an independent if i was outside of that club and and so you know i, I think where you can really make the, in, the intellectual arguments are within those sort of one-on-ones um and that's i i take tremendous value of that and I, i'm very optimistic on some of the stuff that that we can accomplish in the next few years um again I, mike collins who's a congressman running up up in athens georgia uh, he's going into a runoff. He was the, the leader in the first round a great deal. I mean, I've been able to sit down multiple times with him, talk about Bitcoin and things like that. Again, he's, he's likely going to be a congressman come, come November. Um, you know, those relationships, you know, it, it's, it's up to, to me to kind of, you know, make them, make them useful. But that's, that's, that's the, where, I, where I find this battleground most, most effective. It's, it's, it's not the, the ballot box, right? You know, voting is the lowest form of political engagement. It is the persuasion of others. It is the making connections with others. 
that aspect is what I find far more important and a lot more interesting in the political process. Right. And then operating within the GOP in, in the way you do kind of allows you to be, I guess, sort of the, the Ron Paul of, of your local area. You know, you can come in and say, no, look, I'm actually the one that's giving the, what should be the true Republican position. I'm the one that's actually standing up for my community. Uh, this is what we need to be doing. Look at these guys, look at this old guard that's in there. They're no different than the Democrats. So to me, that's, I mean, whether or not anybody agrees with that as a good strategy, it's certainly not just go vote GOP, I, right. I guess is the point. Right. Engage the process at the areas where they really matter. And, uh, and, and that's, that's you know, I'm trying to do some stuff right now with the school board um, uh, you know, without the actual position itself, because again, like there's, there's uh, it, it's incredible you know, the sort of opportunities that you have if you just show up. And particularly if you can bring a few friends with you and like the organization, the organizing framework of a political party is one of the best ways of, of going about that. All right, gang. Well, you know what? I hope you're going to be going about like that transition. That is to be checking out the fantastic CBD products from our friends, Carlos and Vanessa Abelar at Paloma Verde CBD. Dot com. These guys have, I'm not just saying this because they're sponsors. This is actually true. They do have the best CBD products I have ever used. I tried a, a various uh, number of CBD products for aches and pains, for insomnia, uh, when I was in Los Angeles at, at a few different stores. And then when we connected with Carlos and Vanessa, they were kind enough to send me some samples and this salve they have. My God, I have had this like pain in my, my shoulder, my neck for years and years. This is one of the few things that has ever truly calmed that down. By the way, they have some amazing gummies, and I'm just going to tell you that my only criticism, I'm whispering, I don't want Carlos to hear me because I do have a criticism. They're so delicious, you just want to eat them all in one batch. So you might want to order two uh, two things of the gummies, but what's great about this is that because they are sponsors, because they support us, we support them, we support you, you're going to get a 20% discount off any order as well as free shipping for any order over $75 by using discount code ROAR at checkout. So head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com. And use discount code ROAR for 20% off that order. One thing I want to talk to you about a little bit more too. Well, actually, first, I'll save the Florida stuff for a minute. First, I want to go back because my my knowledge of Napoleon is, is probably fairly surface level. It's probably just whatever I got in high school and then, you know, whatever I got from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That, that's pretty much my Napoleon knowledge. So maybe you could dig in a little more on to what you've been learning about Napoleon and how we can apply some of those lessons to perhaps our, our current political situation. Sure. Well, again, this, this has been a lot of fun because I, I think it's very easy to retreat into history and into our, you know, some, some, some really intelligent theoretical thinkers. And it's, and it's easy to kind of just enjoy the, them for themselves and to try and, and, and where, but whereas I think to make them really useful, you have to find ways of taking these sort of historical lessons, these, these great thinkers and applying it to modern day politics. And so I've been really interested since I've gone down my, my sort of hardcore populist rabbit hole with the idea of, of, you know, the great men of history that end up really resetting orders. And, you know, I, I think Andrew Jackson is a great man of American history. Um, you know, I think Abraham Lincoln is a great man of American history, perhaps with a, a, a lesser, uh, <laughs> lesser approved outcomes and some of the structures of government um, in, in, in that ways. But like, I, you know, but as, as, as most Americans, my knowledge of uh, European history was lacking um, you know, everyone had, you know, I, th I think a lot of people, if you're going down this rabbit hole, you, you eventually get to your Roman fetish. And so I've, I've had a lot of time dealing with, with the Romans, but Napoleon was someone who, who increasingly stood out to me because, you know, going down 
um, you know, sort of the neo-reactionary rabbit hole or the the anti-enlightenment stuff. Um, uh, and you know, like the, those are, uh, and, and I loved your episode with uh, uh, R. Uh, McIntyre uh, yeah. uh, uh, recently. And what's interesting is like Napoleon sits within this this very interesting period where he is simultaneously both a direct product of the Enlightenment and and this revolu- revolutionary left you know left wing sort of framework that we're we're supposed to see as the current enemy. And yet he himself was also a counter-revolutionary figure that, you know, if, if, the, if, the, neo, if the goal, right, is to remo- uh, transform a republic back to a monarchy, well, Napoleon is someone who actually did that, right? Like he, he, he was someone who was so talented as a military general, you know, th- that his victories made him extremely popular. You know, he, he, he uh, uh, shared the bag. Um, you know, with, with the French people, with his conquerors, uh, with his victories in, in, in Italy, um, uh, brought back all this sort of great uh, uh, scientific advancements and, and, and artistic sort of stuff to the great museums of France when he had his expedition in Egypt, um, which he kind of bailed at when, when it was about to get really, really bad. Um, but it made him a very, very popular figure. And, and because of his popularity, he was able to essentially end a period that of political bloodshed and chaos like the the revolution gave you um you know you you had originally kind of the 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 moderates in charge the lafayettes and kind of that the american liberals and then they were overthrown and you you start you have the reign on terror with the the jacobins and then robespierre comes in charge and then robespierre is overthrown by people just as you know guilty in the great uh the great terror as he is but far less far more corrupt and therefore self-serving and so it's just this period of chaos and what i find interesting about this is that if you look at you know what what you what allowed for this was the the enlightenment's embrace of meritocracy Hmm. and disavowment of pure natural hierarchy that was the only system that in the first place allowed a napoleon to step up um and so i think there's something to be said about what the enlightenment did in improving meritocracy and and giving up starts and i think you saw, saw similar sort of stuff with, with you know within america um alexander hamilton i think is very much a bonapartian sort of figure um you know like Bonaparte, in fact, I think they have they have a lot of very similar views. Uh, their economic views are are very inspired by Colbert, who was the finance minister of of King Louis, um, which was this very bad mercantilist idea, which actually ends up taking down France. I think that the the you know, the, the the failing of both Hamilton and Col- uh, and and Napoleon were bad economic views, right? And I think that's what separates them from Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson had good economists around him. Napoleon and Hamilton didn't. Um, but there is something to be said there where there, there is a value within the enlightenment of allowing people of talent to, to raise up. Um, there is a dynamic to where Napoleonic France was far better administered when you had that consolidation of power, which I think goes to some of the interesting neo-reactionary arguments for uh, uh, order and things like that, which I think are interesting. Um, and so again, I, I think in terms of a, kind of a historical playground, when you see someone this talented I mean, like when, when Napoleon was on the field of battle with, against another land army, like he was worth like 40,000 men. Like he was like an overpowered video game character, like going around, <laughs> marching, ra- marching around Europe, completely disrupts things. There, there's something there, again, and, and able to both 
overthrow a revolutionary order that was self-destructive by a lot of left-wing impulses and being re- reassets. And, and, and then, of course, then you have the fall of Napoleon. And the fall of Napoleon came from bad economic policy. It came from imperialism. It came from a lot of these sins that the right, right can also be kind of seen as having. Right, a, a, a very jingoistic military policy. Right? That's, that's very much kind of what Napoleon had. Um, uh, this protectionist, uh, you know, France first style sort of economic policies, right? Like that, that, that ended up you know, being his downfall. And so I, I think I, I find myself interested, for one, the lessons to be learned individually just from going down the histories of these great men and both, both, the, both their, their failings and their virtues. I think that's just a fun challenge within a variety of different figures. Um, but the second side of it is just the appreciation for, you know, where true political gains are made. And I, th- I think it's, it's what we need, right? If, if we're looking for solutions to the, the, the inadequacies of our current international order. And in ultimately, I think that's what this all is about, right? This is not all about playing the role of the critic. This is not all about having an ideological agenda that we talk about on social media. Ultimately, we're trying to identify what, actu- what does it actually look like to get America not being controlled by lizard people. <laughs> and ultimately, I don't think that comes about by intellectual discussions at a libertarian convention. I don't think this comes about from you know, opinion pieces in, in the National Review. I think ultimately what it requires is someone of talent that can amass the popularity of the people enough to use his popularity to overthrow presidents, to overthrow the law at times, to overthrow the current structures that maintain the state and then have that person once he achieves that. So, so that, that is, that is the, the over, that, that is Napoleon uh, and, and his coup overthrowing um, the directory and it becomes first consul. And that's the first time Napoleon takes political power like that, that itself. That's we, we need to find that moment as well for us, that, that original victory um, for, for a great man of history. Then it is the creation of an order that can actually deliver on the proposed greatness. Uh, Napoleon was able to achieve that immediately by winning um, uh, great military victories, even though his, his performance actually wasn't that great, neither here nor there. But he was able, he was able to end the, the, the war that was causing a great amount of stress within France, right? So he was immediately able to bring peace like he promised. Um, they ended up resetting laws. They ended up you know, just kind of again, not fully embracing everything in the Napoleonic Code and all that sort of stuff. But they were able to maintain order. And, and French, the, the actual quality of life for your average Frenchman went up. And then he was a, and, but, and, and, and so the question is then, how do you maintain that? Um, Trump actually was very similar. He was able to over, you know, he, he overcome Hillary. He overcame Hillary. He won. Um, there were aspects of his four years where the material well-being of Americans went up. Um, obviously, underdone. Uh, it was plagued by bad, untrustworthy figures within his administration. Um, and, and, and Napoleon actually kind of had his own issue. Like he, he kept putting like his, uh, his, his brothers and you know, he made them like kings of like Spain and, and all these other territories. And it's like kind of a Trumpian over. quality too. Right. And, and so, 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 so the second, so the question then is, you know, what does it look like to have a great man create an order that can actually elevate greatness and maintain itself? 
And then it's how do you maintain it afterwards? And, and so, you know, that's what I find very interesting is going through the highs and the lows of Napoleonic France. And, and again, you know, the result of Napoleon's wars were, you know, millions of Europeans slaughtered. I mean, it was very, very bloody. Like there's those aspects of it that, you know, he's a very controversial figure because he's critiqued both by conservatives that don't like him because he antagonized the Catholic Church, though he himself brought back the Catholic Church. It's a very, you know, he, he kind of brought back the Catholic Church and then got excommunicated by the Pope. Um, very interesting battleground there. Um, so he's, conser- he's, he's condemned by conservatives from some of that stuff. He's conser- he, was, he was condemned by Marx because they saw this as the ultimate um, failure of, you know, this was the their, that grand, grand revolution of the people being overthrown by a military dictator. Right, so that's that he, he Bonapartism becomes a slur within Marxism. He's also praised by an element of the left because he was able to um, kind of cement the advances, the liberally the left wing advances of the revolution relative to the, the the ancient regime. So for some, they see him as a pragmatic uh, uh, defender of the revolution, and that the revolution would have been forgotten without a Napoleonic figure to kind of keep it up. And then again, I I find myself with my own level of appreciation. And again, it, I, I'm just very interested. I, I don't see a lot of, of neo-reactionary content on Bonaparte himself, because again, like this model is, is to me very much kind of what, what we're talking about, right? Or what, what they're talking about if, if your yeah, goal is yeah. to kind of install a king. And so that's why I find, you know, I, I think there's some very interesting parallels to modern history. Um, I think that there are some good lessons that are true beyond just simply this moment. Um, and it's just, it's, I, I find myself having a lot of fun kind of diving into some of this stuff, this, this stuff. All right. Well, I think that this is a good place to sort of segue into talking a little bit more as we wrap up here about who you might view as a, a potential sort of a Napoleonic figure, at least as far as it, uh, the free state of Florida goes. And that is Ron DeSantis. And you and I had did an interview. I feel like it was, I think it was like last April before my wife and I even had paid a visit to Florida, let alone made some of the plans that we're orienting towards right now. Um, but maybe you can recap a few of the the moves that Ron DeSantis has made. And uh, if you, if you like, maybe sort of, you know, tie them into this, this sort of great man theory and, and maybe some of the qualities that Napoleon had. But, you know, I, I think when we first spoke last year, vaccines, Vaccines were out, but there weren't weren't really vaccine mandates yet. And of course, for me, I think the biggest, most important moves that Ron DeSantis has made, uh, if you do value bodily autonomy, and maybe you even value that more than uh, than the proper libertarian position at all times. I'm, I'm doing air quotes since we don't have video here. I'll, I'll let you guys know that. But but uh, what? Do, how do you see some of these moves that Ron DeSantis has made? Whether it's coming to banning vaccine passports, uh, disallowing businesses from requiring vaccines, or maybe some of the the moves that get much bigger headlines, uh, like when it comes to Disney. Yeah, spoiler alert, I, I do think DeSantis can be that sort of great man figure. Um, and and I will, I'll, I'll hold that view until he proves otherwise. And it's been very interesting to see, with, again, within this last year, since the last time we talked, like he, he, he has, con- I mean, he, he's the reason why I have to consider this, because he, he, he continues to overperform any reasonable expectation um, that I could have ever had for the man, even as optimistic as I was last April. Um, and, and, and it's precisely that dynamic of not only has he made, because it's, it's very easy uh, per, you know, when, when you have a Democratic president in particular to take on the role of kind of 10th Amendment saber rattler, right? Uh, um, Rick Perry was playing this role in 2009 
2010 with uh you know kind of the the, the peak tea party years of obama right you know he'd, he'd talk about how you know texas can secede which was you know very bold messaging but you know it was, it was just that it was bold messaging um there was no actual steps made to nullify federal laws in texas there was no great escalation on that front uh, mark sanford when he was governor of south carolina he did some similar stuff i think he believed it a little bit more um he just ultimately preferred the appalachian trail over his duties as <laughs> as governor which you know fair enough yeah, subjective you know. value you know and trips um, to south america maybe you know we, we can't judge here yeah um <laughs> uh uh you had you know state legislators trying to do some of this sort of stuff on a more substantive level uh, many of which were kind of tied into like the Tom Woods uh, uh, Mises Institute orbit. Um, so that, that, was, that was good to see. Some were successful, most weren't. Um, so it's, it's easy to kind of take on the mantle of, of you know, big governor taking on D.C. The difference is, is DeSantis is willing to, to go to be just as strong against corporate power. Um, I had a conversation earlier this year with actually Curtis Yarvin, and, we're, and I, I was kind of making my King DeSantis presentation and he asked me to compare him to like huey long and um at the time i said let's like look I, I think they have different values that would probably prevent you know desantis from doing certain things i, I don't think desantis would um bring in a bunch of you know government officials and have them confess their crimes with uh you know his, his own armed guard you know in the room kind of threatening them and play it for the crowd to see uh over the radio like I, I, there's a very that's a power move right there i don't think i don't think that's quite DeSantis's style. Um, and, and I think that because of that, Huey Long is probably more successful in some ways than, than perhaps DeSantis would allow himself to. But what we've seen is that much like Huey Long, you know, who, whose big kind of punching bag was Standard Oil, um, DeSantis kind of created that with Disney. And, and what I find fascinating is the, again, you know, I, I know all the libertarian arguments to and from, and, and ultimately... What's, what, I, what I enjoy about this is that it's a recognition that policy, that, that legislation is not always an ends in itself. Sometimes legislation is to send a message. And what the particular policy against Disney from, from the Florida government it truly is, am I, and they, they can never say this, but ultimately it's DeSantis sitting down with the executive of Disney with a grenade and pulling the pin and keeping the hammer pulled down so it doesn't go off but says look if we're going to negotiate you're going to take me seriously and now what you have is the florida government with a you know armed grenade at the heart of walt disney sitting there for through next session um these the the specifics of the bill that was passed don't go through until after session and so it wouldn't surprise me at all if you end up seeing like some sort of reforms on Again, and for, for, for those listeners that might have forgotten, since it was many news cycles ago, right, this was, this was the Florida legislature voting to eliminate the special taxing district um, that Disney has set up within Orlando that gives it a, you know, basically carte blanche to do whatever it wants on you know, rules and regulations and that sort of stuff within um, you know, protections that it has from state and county officials. And so because of that, you're already seeing Disney change some of its practices. You have seen... Other corporations, Netflix, for example, is saying basically, look, if you get offended by some of our content, leave. Um, you had corporate boardrooms saying, we don't want to be the next Disney. Um, uh, uh, there's an unfortunate aspect of this where it highlights the degree to which a lot of large corporations are directly subsidized by political policy. Right. And this highlights the degree to which they are recognizing that if they are located in Texas and if Texas ends up you know, finding 
the balls to be Ron DeSantis and do this sort of stuff, they could be hurt a great deal, right? Um, you're, you're, because of that use of, of political power, he has these large corporations that are not market, you know, uh, you know the, the, their cultural viewpoints are not, you know, I think the, the byproduct of what the market demands. Um, that is something that's very, very powerful. Um, something else that he's done recently that is completely ignored if you're in, less in Florida is that he actually vetoed a bill that the largest utility provider, Florida Power, uh, 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 Florida Power and Electric here has. And they had, um, you know, this, they, they, they literally like ran like ghost Senate candidates in uh, third, as third party drawaways. Again, you know, like it, they, they, they used every little tool they could to stack the state Senate with enough Republicans to make sure this bill got through. And then DeSantis just vetoes it. It has support over like the, basically all the Republicans in Tallahassee, the majority of you know, Democrats, and he just vetoes it. And because, again, he recognized that this was a corporate carve-out for a power company that's already deeply unpopular, particularly in my, my neck of the woods, because they're overcharging relative to this other power company they just bought out. Like, he's recognizing that in order to stand up for the middle class, like, there is, like, the actual workers of Florida, like, it's not simply the, the state. Like, there is corporate power that is being abusive here. Um, corporate power that is protected by state policy. And that aspect of it, I think, is it's, it's something that he still gets great critiques from Republicans, conservative magazines, and things like that for doing this sort of approach. This is him being edgy in policy, not just in rhetoric. And I, I love that. And like this is the dynamic that, that makes me further and further sort of convince myself that maybe this guy really does get all the aspects of this game in a way that he really could be a genuine threat to the, to the regime in a way that a Trump couldn't and that no one else in the world stage has. And I, I think generally, as a strategy, um, again, going back to some of that, that conversation about legitimate government versus illegitimate government, ultimately, I think what we've done is he has created a model where we should be wanting every single Republican-controlled, oh yeah, well, Democrat-controlled state. Every state should have a king. Because only a king in that governor's mansion has the power to, to, to fight the federal government, I think, in a way that it necessarily needs to do when it oversteps. And I think, that, I think there can be instances on the left, I think it can be being on the right, but this strong executive framework is something that I think is, is, there's value here beyond my own personal attachment to DeSantis as a Florida man, um, and just simply DeSantis himself as an individual. This is a model, I think, for governing that has a lot of very interesting possibilities down the road. Do you think Ron DeSantis, I mean, obviously you, you can't get into anybody else's head, but do you think Ron DeSantis sees himself this way to some extent as well? Because really, if you look at this from anything other than a, a big picture, he really wants to change certain things way. It's really hard to even understand why he does some of the things he does, because, you know, going against your entire party in the state of, you know, the, 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 in, in the state of Florida, for example, going against the entire legislature on something they'd worked for, you know, and, and machinated their way to, to make happen just for him to completely video it. I mean, that is, that's either really big picture or really principled in his own way, or, or there's maybe some motivation that I don't even see, but I'm just kind of curious how you view what he's been doing and, and why he's been taking this approach, even completely going against his own party. Talking to people around him and, and, and I think he recognizes the moment. I, I, I think that 2020 showed DeSantis how different he was. Like, I mean, again, like, he went up, even though he wasn't the first, right? You know, Kemp was the first governor to open the state. Um, and, and obviously, Christy Nome, you know, uh, uh, never locked down benefits being South Dakota. Like, I, I think that 
the steps that he made in 2020, 2021, I think that he recognizes the moment for what it is. And I think he recognizes his, his place within this moment. And I can, I, I can tell talking to people immediately around him. And again, he, he has had an incredible knack for hiring badasses in positions around him. Again, Christina Pushaw as press secretary is, I mean, like you couldn't ask for, I mean, she, you know, she, anyone out there walking, wanting Michael Malice or in the LP Twitter account, like, I mean, Christina Pushaw has basically been, you know, Malice-like on Maine in the role as press secretary and like the, the entire like grooming framework on attacking the left was purely the byproduct of Christina Pushaw on Twitter. Like that, like, you know, she, that's being able to, to, to identify that sort of talent, give her the flexibility and the freedom for her to be her is those are the little things that matter to me. It, it is uh, Joseph Latipo, the, the Surgeon General, who was out there protesting with the uh, STDs are demons lady, which again, I'm, I'm far more open up to now than I was in 2020, um, but with the frontline medical workers. Um, you know, like, you know, that sort of association would have killed him with, with most Republican governors. Like he elevated him and, uh, uh, his, his secretary of education that, um, is like he, you look up and down the executive positions and the nominations they have are great. And you can always see it because like they get the, the, the most, you know, hand wringing possible from our, our horrible Florida media, um, you know, like the, the, the new secretary of state for Florida, I think her wi- his wife was out there at January 6th, which, you know, I'm sold. If I knew nothing else about the guy, like if, if that's your wife, I'm sold. Um, and so like you know, he's got a knack for surrounding himself with the sort of lieutenants that you need to kind of keep order as well. And, and I, I think that I really do think that he, he understands that he is the, the leader of the resistance at this point. And I, I think that that is why um, the biggest thing that scares me is his relationship with Trump, and I think that DeSantis is smart enough to recognize how important that that, that thing is. I, I, he has avoided doing anything. You know, he he went along with the election stuff rather than than you know dismissing it. Um, you know, after November and 2020, he has publicly played everything smart with Trump as possible. I think that you're going to continue to see some of these bumpings ahead. The more popular DeSantis gets, he's the only person that threatens Trump's hold of the party. Um, and I, that, that is a very dangerous situation to be, um, is, is, you know, between Trump and popularity. And so that's, that's a dynamic there that I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see play out. And what does that mean for 2024 is it's a whole, a whole nother can of worms. Um, but I, I think he, I think he does recognize, I think he has the self-awareness that you need in order to kind of continue on with that. And again, I'm very excited to see where this thing's progressed because again, he's exceeded every time that I said, okay, well, you know, if he, I don't think he'd be able to do this, you know, if he can. Um, you know, that's, that's, he, he's even better than I thought. Like that's come up like three or four different times now, and he he continues to to get it. Like the the, the Republican national, like the, the the he single handedly was able to force the legislature to do a congressional map that gave us like the, that gave Republicans the biggest advantage possible, which wiped out all the gains Democrats had made up to this point within the redistricting process. Like that was only through like his own backbone and a legal staff that was willing to fight these battles. Like. He's making differences at the national level, the local level, corporate level, like every single aspect. The, the biggest issue we have in Florida is that housing prices are insane. And mm-hmm. it's, only, it's all because we have all these people that want to live under the, the, the rulership of, of King DeSantis. 
And like I said, that's, that's the biggest problem. And it's, it's a serious problem. Like I, I've, I, you know, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm willing to, you know, that's a, that's a whole nother conversation. As someone who's been looking since we last yeah. talked, basically, I can say that is absolutely true. And there are parts and, of me that, that wish I just pulled a trigger on something a year ago. Cause I could just, even if I didn't move there, I could cash out right today, you know? Yeah. Like, like that's, that's the biggest problem facing, facing his citizens. So we'll see how he delivers on that one too. All right. Well, well time will tell though. And uh, as we wrap up here, why don't you just let everybody know, uh, not just how they can uh, follow your work and reach out to you, but I believe as far as i know you still do have the standing offer for anybody passing through bay county and uh, i i still intend to take you up on that when we can make uh make make times uh work but uh why don't you just lay that all out for everybody yeah absolutely if, you, if you're ever down here in the redneck riviera and our schedules work um you know definitely would love to buy you a beer you can you know, just reach out to me on twitter at now is there Bishop. a one beer limit there or is like you gotta buy your second one if, if you want to if you want to hang out longer <laughs> depends how the conversation goes it depends, it depends on the conversation <laughs> yeah so that, 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 the subjective let's leave that one open-ended yeah um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, so that's, you know, you, you can find me on Twitter and also if, uh, we've got a great new, uh, animated video series about money. If you have any friends, family members, you know, civic groups that, you know, that they're now re- recognizing that inflation is kind of a big deal and they want to know more about it. What has government done to our money.com? It's going to be a nine part animated video series. We got the first four up there. Now there'll be more to come very, very soon. Um, so that's what has government done to what has government done to our money.com like the the Rothbard book. Um, that's one of our newest projects that we have up there now. All righty, Tho Bishop, thanks so much for coming on. Keep up the great work, buddy. Keep on roaring. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Mark. All right, gang. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tho Bishop. And just to really drive home how dedicated I am to this podcast, I am currently recording this little outro in a hotel bathroom. That's right. Well, I don't want to hear anybody claim I don't care. I don't make sacrifices for my people to bring you these great conversations every single Monday. Do check out the work that Tho Bishop is doing over at the Mises Institute. Check out what my fellow lions are doing. Brian with Mean Age Daydream on Wednesdays. Odie with Finding Freedom every single Thursday. You can get them all on the Lions of Liberty Network. You can also subscribe to those feeds individually. You can subscribe to this show individually at the Lions of Liberty with Mark Claire feed. Regardless, I would really appreciate five-star ratings and great reviews on that Lions of Liberty with Mark Claire feed over at Apple Podcast. That's a big help to me. You can also follow my writing, markclaire.substack.com. The Watcher Speaks. Speaking of The Watcher Speaking, I spoke with No Way Jose last week. If you want to go check out that discussion, we talked about the Reno Reset more, more of my thoughts, a little bit of uh, both of our criticisms of the Mises Caucus strategy. Check that out over at No Way Jose. That's all I've got for this week, kids. Until next time. Live long! And live free. And live free. And live free. And live free.